Psalm 62, uh, if you're using one of the, the blue uh, Bibles in the pews, that is on page 274. Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I have the, uh, the honor of introducing our, our guest preacher this morning, uh, Luke Davis. Um, Luke and his wife, Lynn, will be celebrating uh, 15 years of marriage next month. <laughs> um, originally from Florida, the, uh, the Davis clan moved out here in 2015 when Luke was uh, hired to be the headmaster at Seattle Classical Christian School just up the street. Uh, not long after that, he entered the eldership candidacy process over at downtown Cornerstone Church and was officially installed as a, as a lay pastor there in 2018. Um, this past summer, Luke transitioned away from SCCS, handing over the headmaster role to Mr. Matt Greco, um, and he is now on staff full-time at downtown Cornerstone as the pastor of families, students, and biblical care. Um, Luke's a dedicated pastor, husband, and father. He and Lynn have five children. Um, that's kind of the formal introduction. I emailed Luke to make sure I got the facts right there. Um, on a more personal level, um, I can tell you uh, Luke and all of the pastors over at DCC truly love this church. Um, DCC is very committed to the flourishing of God's kingdom in Seattle, and they designate a portion of their finances to give back to church planning efforts locally and globally. Um, they do that. They support some different organizations as well as specific churches. Um, DCC actually contributed a large, a large sum when ICON started back in 2019. They kind of helped with that initial kickoff and then continued to give monthly into the summer of 2020. Um, even more important than that financial support is how, how they labor in prayer for us and for every church in Seattle. Um, pastors and elders over at DCC prioritize praying for the spread of the gospel in our city and pray regularly for ICON and other churches in Seattle. And over the last several weeks, um, they've been praying for us uh, almost daily. Adam, actually the lead pastor over there, emailed me to say, hey, I've been faithfully praying for you guys every single day. Um, so they have been laboring with us, uh, coming before the Lord, petitioning him on our behalf. Um, we moved out here. My family moved out here in 2017. Luke was actually the first person that we met. Um, prior to moving, about five months before that, we made a trip out just to kind of see the city, to find a place to live, visit a church, and uh, talk to a school. And Walked into DCC on a Sunday morning, and Luke was there checking his kids in. And I was like, oh, hey, I recognize you from the website. I think I'm talking to you tomorrow. Um, and we did. And so then we sat down with him the next day. He told us about kind of the mission, the vision of the school, and his heart for families and for education. Um, in that conversation, he was definitely Mr. Davis, not, not Luke. Calling him Luke is a little weird for me. But um, <laughs> Mr. Davis talked about what classical Christian education is, um, and he connected it to the beauty of God's creation and goodness in a way that I have never heard before. I remember very distinctly, he was talking about how we see beauty and order in math. I was like, oh, that, that doesn't mean anything. And he's like, well, no, like there, there is order. Two plus two is not five. That is, that would be chaos. God has created beauty and order even in math. Two plus two is four. There's beauty there, there's order there. And I, I remember walking away 
just how I felt so comfortable and so safe leaving my kids in his care. Um, Luke's a brother, he's a friend, he's an encouragement in my life and leadership, and he loves all of you very deeply and prays for you regularly. Um, I'm excited for everyone to hear from him this morning. Just as I was in that first conversation almost six years ago, I am comfortable and confident that we will all be safe in his care. Thank you, Jamie. We also have similar wardrobe choices, don't we? That's good. Good morning, Icon. It's, uh, I bring greetings from downtown Cornerstone. The, we, we worship at the exact same time on Sunday mornings, 10 a.m., uh, so it's not common that I'm any other place on a Sunday than Belltown, so it, it is great. We're actually a little closer to my neighborhood. Um, I am a Floridian. Anybody else from Florida here? One? Two? My wife? My oldest son? Okay. So who's in the back? Who's, who's a Floridian? Yeah? Welcome. What part? Okay, great. Uh, that's, uh, that's lovely. Florida's a, Florida's a weird state, but we're not all weird. I don't know you enough to, to be able to say that. Um, so uh, I, I am truly, truly delighted to be here this morning. Uh, we, uh, like Ben said, DCC, we pray for Icon by name on Sunday mornings approximately once a month uh, for a whole church along with a number of other gospel-believing New Testament churches in the city of Seattle. We love you. I, I feel blessed to be here this morning and to open up God's Word. Um, as was read earlier, we're going to be in Psalm 62. Before we get there, um, like Ben said, my wife and I have been married almost 15 years. I've been on this earth for about four decades, um, which is not as much as some of people in this room, but more than most people in this room, I imagine. Um, and the the more time I spend interacting with creatures who bear God's image, the, the more I recognize that people are vast, deep, complex, and mysterious. Would you agree with that? Foolishness is often tantamount to presuming something about someone else. Uh, and God's word shows us the vastness, the inexhaustibility of God's person, and it's not surprising when we interact with other people or query ourselves that we find, um, that we find places beyond boundaries that are mysterious, secret, uh, perhaps upsetting or new to ourselves. And, and I want to start there this morning because I think the text resonates really well with, with remembering this reality. And when I think about the mysteriousness of people, um, I actually go back, like Ben said, I, I'm a longtime educator, love literature, and I go back to the scene at the beginning of A Tale of Two Cities. Who's read Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities? Who's read it and liked it? Okay, not the same number of hands, but a good number still. So, so early on in the book, you don't have to know anything about the book, okay? You don't have to know anything about the book. Uh, early on in the book, this traveler comes into a town in the middle of the night, and he doesn't know anybody there. Um, but he looks around at these houses, and he knows that each house has occupants who are sleeping. And he's reminded about the, the, the mystery that's held within the heart of each person. Difficult to know, difficult to, to comprehend, to conceive, to know um, exhaustively. And, and, and he says this as he walks into this town. You can imagine, cold, dark, you're a stranger. And he says, a wonderful fact to reflect upon that every human creature is constituted to be that profound secret and mystery to every other. 
when I enter a great city by night, that every one of those darkly clustered houses encloses its own secret, and that every room in every one of them encloses its own secret, and that every beating heart and the hundreds of thousands of chests there are, in some of its imaginings, a secret to the heart nearest it. Can you imagine it? If, if, if you're married and you lay down in bed, go to sleep at the end of the night, your spouse, whom you know best, closest to you, physical proximity, their heart is still a secret place. For you to know that, they have to reveal it and have some type of self-awareness and vice versa. So why do we start here? We start here because... If I am in some part of mystery, and you are as well, we, we are people who need some type of founding. We need an anchor. We need a foundation. We need, we need like what Ben said, a safe place, a place that's steady, that we can, that we can plant our feet, right? And we need to be able to uh, be able to share a place of safety and strength and refuge with those around us, especially as Christians. As Christians, every day in our own hearts and in others, we encounter a multifaceted mix of sin and suffering and, again, as Christians, sainthood, don't we? And we wonder, as the waves of our own hearts toss to and fro and other people around us are in desperate circumstances, what refuge will we hold out to others and to ourselves? As Christians, part of our job description is to be disciple-makers, is to be witnesses of a kingdom come. What, what message will we hold out to ourselves and to others? What light can we shine? We want to be ambassadors for the kingdom, witnesses of the gospel, defenders of the hope we have within us. And that it, it begs a question, doesn't it? What can we hold out to people, especially when we can be so mysterious to ourselves or to others? And if you're here this morning, uh, perhaps you're, you're seeking Christ, you're, you're learning a bit more what it is to be a Christian, uh, to follow Jesus. What, what hope do you have? What refuge can you run to for yourself and then others who are at desperate needs in your life? And this is where Psalm 62 comes in. We're going to read it again in a moment. But it begs the question, what should our souls wait for? What should our souls be hoping in? And, and when we find that place of refuge, why is it a peculiarly safe place to find a haven? And I found Psalm 62 has been a place again and again that has held forth hope and safety and refuge to me. And I'd love to share that with you this morning. It's a Psalm of David. We're not going to look at the entire Psalm, just verses 5 through 8 in Psalm 62. The context is one of desperation. We don't know exactly the details behind this. Uh, some commentators believe like this is the point where David's son Absalom ran him out of the kingdom and was trying to take over the job as king. And Absalom wrote Psalm 62 in response to that. There's no definite knowledge uh, from the psalm. So all we need to know is that things aren't great in the context of Psalm 62. Things aren't great. And we want to come to David's words, and David in some of his psalms is furious, in other psalms he's lamenting. Here, actually, he's quite confident. And I, I want us to all together to come to the text and to query, why is he confident? What is his source of hope, safety, and stability? Will you read Psalm 62 with me, verses 5 through 8? For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock 
in my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. And then notice, this is an inward talking, and now he's talking out. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So God is our refuge. That's what I want to focus and circle around this morning. Um, and we're going to do so over the next 35 minutes or so as we, as we move through three commands in this text. First command is wait in silence. Do you see that? Second command is trust in him at all times. And the third, pour out your heart. We want to explore these remarkable truths. We want to consider how these shape our everyday life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come together as an expression of, as we said earlier, capital church, cap, uh, church capital C, lowercase church here this morning at Icon. Uh, these are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we confess, like David, to one degree or another, we find ourselves in, a, in desperate situations. And when we find ourselves in those desperate situations, what will we do? How will we respond? Where will we run? Where will we feel safe? What message will we tell ourselves? Those are perennial questions. Help us to answer them from your word. Uh, be present here with your spirit to, to do the true work of transformation, consolation, conviction, affirmation. And remind us today, Lord, that for those who are Christians, when we look to you in desperation, you look to us with compassion. And for those here who do not know your compassionate heart, would you please move to draw them toward you? Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so, first up, waiting in silence or laying down frantic flailing. Waiting in silence. I think it's always fun to start off by asking, like, why in the world is this text here? Uh, the Bible is a big book, but it could be much larger. Why is this text here and uh, not something else? Um, why did God see it fit to give us this psalm, Psalm 62? Why is it here? What purpose does God have for his people in it? Uh, or we could ask even a more specific question. Why did David find it necessary to say to himself, wait in silence for God alone? Why did he need to admonish himself and to say, remember, your God is a rock, a fortress, and a refuge? Why does he need to remind himself that his hope and his reputation rest not on his shoulders, but with God? These are good questions to ask ourselves as well. So the context of, of this psalm, what precedes verse 1, is desperation. There's some type of desperation that's encircling this psalm as David writes it. And so let's plant ourselves. Can we, can we imagine ourselves in a desperate situation? I'm certain it doesn't take a lot of imagination. And desperation is that place between eager expectation and despondent frustration. It's like this state of, of wanting something or someone so intensely that if we get it, we think we might be unassailably happy. But we find ourselves in a place where we feel like we're standing on hollow ground. Hope is far off and out of reach. That's what desperation is. Um, 
it's uh, desperate is like, okay, how many of us are finding ourselves here right now? Desperation is the person who wants to be seen and noticed by a crush, but that crush is already in a happy, satisfying relationship with somebody else. Desperation is the business owner who's labored for months or years to put together a stellar business plan and exhaustively worked and researched to prepare it, gather all the necessary resources, only to find that the market at that point of launch is unexpectedly barren. Desperation is the parent who wants to figure out just the right string of words to tell their son or daughter to help them finally trust in Jesus. Uh, Desperation is the addict who sees the shackles and can't find the key, or maybe thinks that if they ever do, they may not even use the key if they find it. Um, Desperation is the young professional who spent years dreaming of this future profession, laboring after it through school and internships, finally lands the job they're hoping for, and then finds that HR guidelines are at immovable odds with their Christian faith. Desperation is the abused person who escapes this place of danger only to find themselves now in a labyrinth of despondency, despair, and the pitfalls of trauma. Desperation is a friend who can't find a way to take back the words they just said. Can you imagine? Desperation is a place that David knows. It's a place that I know. It's a place that you know. Psalm 62 is for us. It's, it's at the, and it's at these points, right? What are we wanting at those points? Well, I will confess what my heart wants at these points of desperation is I'm lusting for power beyond my limits. I'm wanting access to all the unknown mind of God so I can see how we get to point B. I, or, or maybe even I'm wanting the release of apathy. I just want to stop caring when I'm desperate. And it's here that we are wanting an answer or a power or a charisma or access or consummation that whatever it would be, we'd finally feel safe and happy and content and at peace. We wouldn't be scared anymore. Fretting and gnawing anxiety would dissipate like waking up from a dream. This is why God gives us Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8. Aren't you glad for this good father? He knows us in our need and he delivers this to us. So this psalm gives us guidance, especially when it starts off. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. This is light from an outside universe to the desperate soul, isn't it? It's, it's, it's in a scenario like this that the impressive image of Psalm 62.5 comes in. And in this like turmoil, this boiling pot of desperation, Psalm 62.5 enters and it's like this placid lake this peace, this stillness that we want and don't know. It's a place of quiet and steadiness, a motionless waiting. One commentator described uh, Psalm 62.5 as a holy inactivity. And to be honest, I find this really hard to imagine. Do you? I have five kids. It's hard to imagine stillness and quietness. But even more so, it's hard to imagine in in the moment of desperation, What does it look like to be still, to wait in silence for God alone? Maybe your mind captures it more easily, but I go to, there's this this blazingly bright text in Exodus. 
uh, Exodus 14. If you know the Bible, you, you probably know this story. If not, this is a fun one. So uh, Israelites, the people of God, they've been slaves for four centuries in Egypt. And by the hand of God and the leadership of Moses, they've just left. And now they're at the precipice of the Red Sea. Do you remember what's happening? They're, they're, they find themselves leaving Egypt. But they also then discover that Pharaoh is now turning back on his word and pursuing the people of God with his whole army in tow. The Israelites, they're aware of the approaching uh, Egyptians. Um, they can't go anywhere. They're cut off. The sea is before them. And they, they mob Moses in a panic. Can you feel the desperation there? They're expressing their fear in terms, well, like this. In Exodus 14, listen. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. These are desperate people. And desperate people think up Desperate solutions. Desperate people often look to their own strength or their own wisdom to find a solution to whatever's causing them to feel out of control. Have you ever found yourself in a similar situation? Did you notice in their, in their desperation, they're flailing for some type of answer. Did you notice the solution? Their solution is saying, let's just become slaves again. Let's just go back to slavery. And this is anti-waiting. This is anti-silence. This is the opposite of what Psalm 62.5 is calling us to. And Moses responds, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Here's... The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You see the parallel there? Only to be silent. And that's a decidedly like, uncharismatic like, um, a speech as like a leader to troops before, before enemies are approaching. Um, they were encouraged not to fight, but to, but to lay down their arms, to lay down their flailing, to enter a place of, of waiting, of peace, of, of holy expectation on God. To do what only he could alone. Moses is calling them to obey words that hadn't yet been written. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. And we so often, at least I know my heart, when we find ourselves in a desperate situation, we flail. We are frenetic to try to figure out, to make it better. And so often in those moments, we're drawing upon our strength and not God's. And what does that look like? It looks like someone who's, who's lonely. Maybe Seattle is a new city to you. You don't know people yet. Thank you for being here. Continue to invest in the local church. But you're desperately lonely. And, and it begins to seem okay to think, I don't feel lonely on Sunday mornings, but on Friday nights, it'd just be so much easier if I just uploaded Tinder, looked for someone I could hook up with, and by the time Sunday morning comes around, I can repent. Because God's gracious, right? That's frantic flailing, moving in human strength. Or angry. 
In our anger, we find ourselves desperate for another reason. Something we love or value is under threat, and we want to make sure that thing is safe and not at threat any longer. And so that means, um, well, it's okay then. If, if what I value is important and I want to protect it from this threat, then I, this is kind of going outside the bounds. But if I, if I slander, gossip, or undercut this person's reputation and attack their basic dignity, no one will trust what they have to say. And then the thing that they're threatening will no longer be at risk. Do you see how these heart motivations can lead us, if we're not waiting in silence upon God, to grasp at straws that seem to provide a solution but are thoroughly wicked, or, or at least deliver something that's not flourishing but more problems? could go on for a while with examples. I won't. Um, stillness and quietness are features of a relationship with God. They show respect and attention to who he is in order to learn his will and submit to his purpose. That, that waiting in silence isn't an empty ohm in the silence. It's a waiting with expectation that the God whom I have relationship with can fill me up with wisdom, can give me direction, can remind me that he's close, and can, has space to enter in, that we are, we are submitting to his way, to his power, to his strength and wisdom, as opposed to our own. So caveat, okay, caveat. This does not mean, of course, that God expects his people to never work to secure life and well-being and to simply sit on their hands and to be, for a theological term, hyper-Calvinist, and to think, well, if God wants it to happen, he's just going to get it done. That is not what he's calling us to. The same David who wrote this psalm also obeyed God by fortifying the walls of Jerusalem and making sure there were scouts looking for the territory to, to secure the safety of Israel, okay? And he was being faithful in that as king. Similarly, we should not um, just throw up our hands and say, well, if God wants it to happen, that's fine. No, this is directing us to place our ultimate security, our ultimate trust in him. Frantic activity, whether in conflict with the enemy, in pursuit of wealth or power, in some form of desperation, always leads to death, not life. So the question is, how do we enter into this place of stillness? And the psalm continues to guide us down that path. Next, trust in him at all times, resting on the rock. Trust in him at all times, resting on the rock. We find ourselves desperate. We're invited to wait in silence. How might we approach that patient place of stillness, remembering who God is, what he says about himself, what his character is. So I want to look at two kind of images here, this image of rock and fortress and this image of refuge in the psalm, okay? Remember again, who's writing this psalm? It's David, and David was a military man. He understood that when his army would camp for the night or when they were about to be confronted with an enemy, they should have the high ground, a safe place, a defendable position, yeah? So this is a mighty rock or a fortress. You find yourself high up with vision so you can't be outflanked or so you can set up a defensive perimeter. So when David hears these things, he's not merely thinking of poetic answers. He's actually uh, drawing forth like martial imagery here. There is an enemy, there is a threat, and I want to be in a place of safety in order to encounter it. And, and literally, like a, a military leader um, getting themselves in a rock or a fortress was, they could quite literally bet their life on it if a threat showed up. And the idea we need to catch here is that David is likening God to a preserving and protective power. 
when we, when we rest our reputation, our hope, our safety in him, we find ourselves unable to be outflanked, unable to be surprised, unable to be taken over unexpectedly. God protects his people as their shield. That's another image often used in the Old Testament, often used by David in his everlasting arms. And we can trust both our spiritual and physical safety to him. And the Bible doesn't merely call us to trust on this without lots of evidence. And the greatest evidence, the greatest threat to our life is sin and death, isn't it? Is judgment to come. And this is where we can argue from the greatest to the lesser, that we can trust all of who we are to the Lord to provide because of who he is, what his character is like. In fact, um, we read this some this morning uh, in Matthew 6, uh, the Lord feeding and clothing the sparrows, um, but, but even more so, death and evil. How can we be protected here? And, and Jesus gives certain security he says in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And Jesus is speaking about people right then, right now. We can know this eternal life, this life that is unable to be assailed before death even shows up. Later, Jesus says in John chapter 10, my people, he likens them to sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. And this, this tells us right now today, the greatest threat to your safety, the greatest threat to upsetting, uh, to moving you into a place of desperation, death, evil, sin, they too have no hold over you in Christ. You are beyond the grasp of them, beyond the ultimate effect on them. They have no ultimate hold on you, Christian. God is our, our mighty rock, our strong fortress, our tower of strength. No enemy or threat can usurp those walls to effectively remove us from his defensiveness. But he's not just a mighty rock and, and um, a mighty fortress. He's also a refuge. I think th this, this is so worthy of future conversation. I would encourage you the next week, the next whatever, as you're in time with community or other people close to you, ask each other this question. What is your refuge reflex? What is your refuge reflex? When, when you find yourself under threat, what does your heart tend to go to for refuge, for safety, for consolation? <clears throat> it can be so many things. It can be so many things. Where do we run for rest, comfort, peace, encouragement, wisdom, healing, strength? And we know from the testimony of the word and the testimony of the spirit, there's only one place to run for true protection, rest, strength, where that can be found. We, we want to learn to make the Lord our refuge, but, but we need help. The first thing on that road of help is recognizing where we tend to naturally run for refuge. Oftentimes, we can, we can set ourselves up to be our own personal Messiah. Perhaps we run to entertain, hoping to numb or displace our troubles by escaping into someone else's story. 
Or maybe we run to a substance in order to turn off the pain. Maybe we're tempted to run to something we can engage in like food or sex that displaces the threats with some type of new pleasure. Um, All of these, unfortunately, since they are not God, they merely add disappointment to our troubles when we run to them for refuge. God is our refuge and our strength. He rules in every location that our trouble exists, doesn't he? He controls all the relationships where disappointment might rear its head. Only he has the power to rescue and deliver us. He has the grace to face what we need regardless of what we're facing. Only he holds the wisdom that in the day of trouble we desperately need so we're not flailing and grabbing our own solutions. Only he is in, with, and for you at all times, Icon. He is our refuge of refuges. Do you run to him when you're pressed? If you're like me, you don't always run to him first. And it's good in accountability and community to confess like, hey, here's often where I go when I'm pressed. I want you to know that so you can be another word to me, pulling me back to the refuge of refuges. So we want to go even further, right? We're all asking the question, how do we, as Christians, how do we in God's world, how do we as his people, what do we do when we find ourselves in desperate need? We're called first to wait on God in silence, expectantly hoping and trusting that he will move. And we remind ourselves in that desperate place who he is. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our refuge. And then third, what do we do in response? We pour out our heart. We pour out our heart. I think another way to ask this is how do we, how do we actually treat God like a refuge? It's, we can find ourselves in places of safety and not treat it as such, not believe it's a place of safety. Still come in with, with this pent-up anxiety, angst, fear, and are unable to actually allow rest to come and affect us. Psalm 62.8 is a command. I want you to hear this. This is a command of the Lord. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. How can we inhabit our Lord, the refuge, well? I don't have a cup to illustrate this, but imagine, imagine I had, had, had a cup of water, and the word pour here isn't like a little dribble, just a little bit. The word pour is, actually has this idea of turning over, emptying out. Pour out your heart. It means to, to pour all of it out before our dear Lord. Another image that comes to mind, again, we've talked about a couple times. We're a family of seven. William in the front row knows this because he often has to step over laundry to get out of his bed. Right, William? Thanks for letting me embarrass you. Um, we are a family that always has lots of laundry. And, and when I think of this image of pouring out our heart before God, I think of taking that empty laundry basket and, and dumping it over and there's, there's no order, there's, there's no cleanliness yet. It's just a mess at the feet of God. And this is what we're not just, I, I don't want to use the passive word invited. I want to use the active word commanded by our Lord to do. Commanded to pour out our heart before him. Um, when we pour out our heart before God, we're not looking to do any sorting beforehand. We don't have to make untrue thoughts true. We don't have to make ugly thoughts beautiful. We don't have to make dirty thoughts clean. 
He wants us to pour out what's in there. He's big enough. He's good enough to take anything that comes out. Before God changes us, do you, do you realize this? Before God changes us, he calls us to speak what we're thinking out loud to him. Even though we aren't thinking rightly, perhaps. When we, when we sort out, um, sorry, when we express what's in our hearts, an actual assorting begins to happen. In what better place for us to, to bring our desperation than to the Lord in prayer? He is present to help us. And, and Psalms are a beautiful example of this happening again and again from David and Asaph and the sons of Korah and others, where these prayer, Tim Keller calls them, um, outbursts from the depths of your being in the presence of God. The Psalms are wonderful guides for our prayers. It helps us pour out our heart. So God transforms us in his presence. In prayer, pouring out our heart is this exercise of trust, of transparency before God, expecting him to do a work of examination. When you pray, how do you imagine God receiving what you're saying? How do you imagine God looking at you when you pray to him? As we pour out our heart, God looks at us with love. He looks at us with compassion. His love does not materialize based upon the degree of truth, honor, praiseworthy, pure thoughts, expressions that are coming out of your heart. That's not the way he works. In his earthly ministry, Jesus was drawn to the outcast, to the marginalized, to the dirty. Our Lord's character has not changed. When we pour out our heart, he is drawn towards us in compassion. We want to recognize we cannot, we cannot expect to wait in holy inactivity. We cannot expect to inhabit the refuge or to trust in the fortress merely through an act of willpower. We in prayer are even invited to confess that we are scared of entering his fortress. We are unsure that he will care for us the way we want. He can take those thoughts. The stillness we find is in his faithful presence as we come to him. We, uh, we know that when we come before God and pour out our hearts, we will never be rejected. But how can we know that? We know our hearts better, right? right? I talked about at the front how mysterious we are to ourselves at times and certainly to one another. And it would be, oh, gosh, so embarrassing, so shame-inducing, so scary for someone to accurately know the inner corridors of our hearts, I imagine. But we can trust that we will not be rejected if we expose ourselves before the Lord. Why can we trust? Because Jesus was utterly exposed on the cross on our behalf. Jesus was rejected by his heavenly father as he bore sin, as he bore our ugliness, as he bore our foolishness, so that we, as we come to the Lord, coated with all of these things in desperate need for help, he receives us. And not just at conversion, but again and again and again and again. Are you feeling desperate today? What will you do the next time you feel like you need to run to a refuge? To what refuge will you go? Please come to this refuge. Be still. Don't flail. 
We can trust and enter into this because of the truth of the gospel, because of what was accomplished on the cross, because God commands us to pour out our heart before him. Let's obey that together as we enter a moment of silence in just a moment, okay? We can bear our souls before God safely, fully, always. But before we're reminded, um, I, want, I want to remind us before we take the Lord's Supper that Jesus offers us now something better than was even offered in Psalm 62. In Psalm 62, we were offered a refuge. But Jesus welcomes us to eat at his table. It's not only a safe place away from the threats and the fears, we now have a place to feast as well. And it's not just with one another. That sounds great, but it's with the Son of God. He, he wants to dine with us. God eats with sinners that have been made clean in Christ. Jesus took meals with prostitutes, outcasts, people generally held in contempt. And th that earthly ministry, those earthly meals, set up this new covenant practice, right, that we practice as a church. As we take the juice and the bread, these are relational, not empty rites. And so this is a great thing to do in a moment after we take a moment of silence. If you are in relationship with Christ, if you're not yet in relationship with Jesus, still wondering what it means to follow him, I encourage you to take this time not to take the juice and the bread, um, but to consider where is my refuge? What hope can I hold out to myself? Do I have a strong fortress to retreat to? Consider what's held forth in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm 62. Thank you um, for being a strong fortress, a mighty rock, an open refuge where the door is never closed. Thank you for not being intimidated, overwhelmed, or repelled by our sin, our suffering, our mess, our mystery. And Lord, I ask for those in the grip of despair or on the edge of despondency that not my words, but your word and your spirit would come close, would be present, and would pull us all, especially hurting people, towards you. You delight in coming close and being around and bringing safety to those who are in desperate need. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.